I enjoyed that song and that uh, the scriptures there. As a matter of fact, my eyes caught on verse 14 where it says, Because he hath set his love upon me. Of course, that's talking about the, the person who is doing what's spoken of in verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. He has set his love upon me, and because he's done that, he says, I will set him. And notice the location. I will set him on high. Well, if you go back to where we've just been studying, in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, Set your affection on things above. So, and I didn't, I never, I didn't, catch that in my study. I didn't go back and look at that, so that was pretty neat. I like that. Uh, did you pick it out? Great. Okay. See, that just fit right in. And at least for me, that's that was great. I enjoyed that. All right, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll see if we can finish this chapter off. Chapter 4 is going to go awfully fast because um, there's an awful lot of just personal remarks at the end of that last chapter. And so uh, we're, we're, we're bearing down on, on the end of this. And as we've been discussing regarding chapter 3 and on, we've been talking about the practical application of what Paul has been teaching the believers in Colossae and what ought to be happening to them now that they have received the Lord Jesus Christ and they have shown themselves to be standing fast in the gospel. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to turn there for just a moment, Ephesians chapter 5. I want us to look just for a moment at verse 8. Several of Paul's epistles follow this pattern, by the way this pattern of doctrine and teaching, and then following upon that, the practical exhortation. But I also want us to see it in one verse here. In one verse, in verse 8, Ephesians 5, he says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Okay, he's talking about their position. What has happened to them? The same thing that happened to the believers in Colossae. They were translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan. And now there's to be a change in their lives because of that. And here he's telling them, Now are ye light in the Lord, therefore walk as children of light. There is a corresponding pattern of lifestyle that is to fit what we, what we are in Christ. Well, this passage that we're looking at here in chapter 3 of Colossians is really just a, a, a huge expansion and a more detailed description of what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. What should characterize us? We saw last week about mortifying your, your members in verse 5, putting them to death. That's what the word mortify means. It means to put them to death. 
It doesn't, it carries a lot heavier connotation to it, and the actual literal meaning of the word means put it to death, rather than just the idea that we kind of convey with the idea of mortify, which just kind of sometimes to us just means hold it down, suppress it. No, he doesn't mean to suppress these feelings of sexual lust and and fornication and uncleanness and all these other things, covetousness. We're not just to suppress them. He says, put them to death. You'll notice he says in verse 6, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming, literally, on the sons of disobedience. Now we find that same expression back in Ephesians again. So let's turn back there to chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And keep your finger over there, of course, in Colossians. We'll be coming back. But in Colossians chapter 2, he talks about the same thing. The sons of disobedience. In chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, or literally the sons of disobedience. Those who were at one time walking in disobedience, having now been quickened, he is telling them that they are no longer to be associated with or walking with those who are the sons of disobedience. I know that, commonly speaking, you ask the average Bible teacher or preacher that he would say the sons of disobedience, that's just all the unsaved people, the unregenerate ones. But let's just turn over to chapter 5. Actually, let's look up chapter 4 first. Beginning with chapter 4, notice what he says there. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. And what is he beseeching them about? Their walk. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has covered the, the doctrinal or the didactic, the teaching portion of his letter, what his instructions to the believers at Ephesus. And now here in this chapter, he's beginning the practical exhortation. In view of what we know about God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what He has accomplished on the cross on our behalf in view of all this, and now that you have received Him, this is how you ought to be walking. Now, if we turn over to chapter 5, He says then in verse 1, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Follow Him. It's still talking about the walk of a Christian. And if we come down to verse 6, you'll notice that he says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things is coming the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. 
Now, in this context, the warning is to the Christian. And the warning is to beware of those who would deceive you, lead you astray, cause you to go back and walk with the sons of disobedience, and thereby associating yourselves with them and actually then becoming one yourself, walking disobediently. And so we find even here in Colossians, Paul hasn't you know, changed his demeanor, he hasn't changed his definition at all, but these in Colossae whom he's instructing about walking in the faith, He's using words that refer to putting on clothing and taking off clothing. Put off, he says, these particular things. And in in verse 5, he mentions all these things here are sexually related sins. You're to put these to death. Mortify these things. Fornication and uncleanness and inordinate affection and evil concupiscence or evil desire and evil longing. And covetousness, which is idolatry or basically just greediness. The desire to have more. And then you'll see down in verse 8, he talks about putting off a series of other things. And these are sins of speech. All of these relate in some way to how we treat others verbally. He talks about anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy communication out of your mouth. Verse 9, he talks about lying one to another. And he said, don't do that. Seeing that or in view of the fact that you have put off the old man with his deeds. And that word put off, it's simply, it's an aorist tense. And it's talking about a past action, something that has happened. Because you have been moved from that realm of darkness to the realm of light, a transaction took place in our lives, and now we're to walk in association with the transaction that has taken place. From having put off the old man and its association with the the, the realm of darkness, and we have put on the new man, in the realm of association with the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's dear Son. And because we are now over here, we are to put off those things that are associated with this life over here and begin walking in a new fashion. Now, sometimes when that happens, dramatic things happen in our lives. And quite frankly, things overwhelm us and changes take place. And we're so taken up with this new life that we have received from Christ that the changes sometimes seem almost automatic. We don't really have to do anything about it. But there are other things that we have to work on. Sometimes they don't just automatically go away. I mean, I've heard testimonies of people with Maybe they had a problem with anger. And they said when they received Christ, it was just like the anger just it just went away. It was gone. They didn't have any more problems with it. They didn't have to deal with it anymore. But then others, it was something they had to work on putting off and removing it from their life. 
and dealing with it on a regular basis until they could grow and mature to the point in their life that they could bring their anger, anger under control. And it would not be something that characterized them as a follower of Christ. I remember one time, it's been a while back, back in Galatians chapter 5 where we see that list of sins there and where it talks about those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And one of the things there, <clears throat> excuse me, he says is, um, um, I'll see if I can find it because I didn't look it up. Um, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath. And some of your newer translations you probably have, it says outbursts of anger. And I remember one of the men that was heard me teaching about this, he came up afterwards and said that his wife had really had a problem with that. And when she saw that, and saw what the consequence was of not inheriting the kingdom, he said it just shook her to the core, startled her. That such a thing would be of such importance to God that we could lose our inheritance over that. Of course, that's in Galatians. Here in Colossians, those are mighty big lists of sins. And there are a lot of things that we have to deal with in our Christian life. And Paul is careful to enumerate even nuances of various sins, like, for instance, the sexual sins here. Even such things as just evil desire, let alone naming the specific things of adultery and fornication and, and uh, so forth. And so even, even the little things that we think we can get away with, or we think, well, because I've never been an adulterer or an adulteress, or I've never done this or that, that probably I'm all right. But may not be the case. Because there are many other nuances of those sins that we have to take into account. And Paul's admonition to us is to put them all to death. Remove them as garments. When you take them off, you don't hang on to them. You don't wrap it around your neck. You don't tie it around your waist. You put it off and you get rid of it. And the biblical principle here is the doctrine of replacement. You put something new in its place. You replace what has been removed. And Paul's telling us there in verse 12, put on therefore then. You remove these things, you put these things to death, you cannot um, continue or subsist in your walk with Christ in a condition like that. Because if you do, something more evil will come in and take its place. And you'll not profit or benefit just because you put off. There has to be the putting on as well. Back in, um, let's see here, where was that in Psalm? I think it was Psalm 40. I was trying to look that up a little bit ago, and then I forgot about my glasses, and I had to go get them. Uh, yeah, in Psalm chapter 40. If you want to turn over there just for a moment, look at the first three verses. And you'll see what God does as a matter of his work 
in a person's life. He says in verse 1, in Psalm 40, in verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Now, see, this is the picture of a person who um, is seeking out the Lord. He's a, a saint. He's a faithful follower, a longing for a relationship with God, and he's waiting patiently for him. And he says, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. The Lord did that for him. But what else did he do? In verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God, many shall, uh, excuse me, many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. And so we see God taking him out of that miry pit, putting him on a solid footing, but he also put a new song in his mouth. There was replacement taking place. And, it, and it's, the principle runs all the way through Scripture. It's that way always. We can't take things out of our life and remove the bad or the evil or those things which are dragging us down spiritually and think that we're going to be okay if we don't turn around and replace them with the positive. And that's what this whole section here that Paul's admonishing us concerning is taking off those things that detract, that hinder us from the inheritance, or as we'll find out at the end of, of, of this chapter, specifically talking about a servant here, but he says about receiving the inheritance where you serve the Lord Christ. Now back in, back in verse 10, when he tells us there, put on the new man. Which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. He is renewed in knowledge. Our inward man, Paul told us in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it is, is being renewed day by day. Now, that's not a static thing. Meaning that, well, when I get up in the morning each day, you know, God's just renewing me and it's going to happen automatically, but rather it's a dynamic thing. And dynamic simply means there's an interaction between you and the Word of God and His Spirit so that this renewing can take place. So it involves relationship with the Lord. It involves us walking with Him on a regular basis. And he also tells us there, being renewed in knowledge is the mature knowledge. The kind of renewing he's talking about leads to a full, complete, mature knowledge. And that knowledge is after the image of of him that created him. You know, we were originally created in God's image. We're well, well aware of that fact. If we would turn back to Genesis chapter 1, we would see that very quickly. Let us make man in our image. And so that was. But when disobedience took place, 
on the part of Eve and Adam, then that image was marred and ruined. And now it has to be restored. And that which Jesus Christ, God's Son, accomplished on the cross on our behalf enables us to have a foundation or a basis upon which our image in God can be restored. And it happens in two fashions. It happens positionally, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, where we are removed from one realm to another. We also see it here in Colossians, where he's talking about being removed from the realm of darkness to the realm of light. But then we also see him admonishing us that in view of what has happened, then we're also to walk that way. And so there's a progressiveness. There's a daily renewing, or we would call it sanctification or progressive sanctification, a continued removing and setting apart from that old way of life and that old way of living and a further, closer attachment to Jesus Christ in order that we might become like him in his image. And so all these things require us to be proactive in our Christian life. It requires us to be proactive in the scriptures, in the word of God, in these holy writings, because there's life in them. They are living words. And this this is our source of life. God has imbued them with his spirit. And life comes forth to the person who believes and responds appropriately to what we read in this book. Oh, yeah, he talks about many practical things. Put on bowels of mercies. That sounds pretty gross, you know, when you think about bowels of mercies. But the the Greek word there is literally the, the inward organs of a person. Those things where we talk about our emotions. You know, we talk about our heart being broken. We talk about um, things that might happen in life. You know, say somebody gets to hear the big C word, cancer. You know, and they say, well, it just hit me right in the gut, you know. Because it was an emotional feeling that hit them. And, you know, even doctors and scientists will tell you, you know, that even today... That outward things like that, events maybe, the loss of a loved one, can put our inward organs in turmoil. And they can be really just thrown out of whack sometimes. Well, Paul's admonition here about these bowels of mercies really just is talking about that. Having a tenderness about others, or, or as some would translate it, they would say something like hearts of compassion or compassionate hearts or tender mercies. You know, you stop and think about, wait, what kind of a person would I have to become to be known as a person who is full of tender mercies? There's a lot to ponder when you think about something like that. What kind of person would I have to be? What changes would I have to make in my life in order for someone to characterize me as a person of tenderness 
and compassion. Of course, he doesn't stop there. He talks about kindness, just having a, a sweet and gentle disposition, or humbleness of mind. Now, that's, a, that's another one to deal with, a person of low degree. And it's translated that way in several other passages. Those of low degree, those who are humble of mind. Or another uh, translation is those of low estate. So when it, you know, or cast down is another translation of this same word. And so those who are depressed or suppressed, in other words, it's talking about down. Not elevating up. And of course, that's not the way of the world. That's not the way those in the realm of darkness habituate themselves or practice their life. The associations of the world and the cosmos are, no, I'm over here and here's this guy here and I'm going to push him down in order to try to get myself up a little higher. And rise above so that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm above. When rather, this takes the proactive stance of willingly lowering myself, humbling myself. That's one reason I told you, I think, before. I don't like elevated platforms in church. If I had my desires, we would just all meet in a little circle somewhere. I'd be sitting down on a chair and I'd be on the same level you are. Because that's where I really am. And all just standing here in this pulpit, all it means is, is this is the gift God has given me. And it's my responsibility then to exercise this gift here. Lowliness of mind means not elevating yourself above someone else. Then he talks about meekness. Meekness is, again... Quite simple. It just means the opposite of being arrogant or harsh. Or, um, well, I guess harsh is a good word. Dealing, and all, all these talk about our relationship with others, how we deal with others, and being, being a meek person. And he talks about long-suffering, which I, I've, I've always, I don't know, I get enamored with words sometimes, but I like this one. Because it, it, the literal meaning there just means long-tempered, having a long temper. How many people do we know that have a short temper? It doesn't take them very long to fly off the handle, as we would say it. But here he's talking about being a long-tempered person. To suffer long with those who are treating you or being an adversary to you in some fashion or another, and we're long-suffering towards them. I mean, you might even think about, what was the guy's name that came in this morning? Joey, yeah. He's been in here before, and we've given Joey money before. Last week we had somebody, a couple weeks before that there was somebody else, and people come by here all the time. You know, it, it, it would be pretty easy after a while, just to get upset with people coming in the door all the time asking for money, wouldn't it? It it really would. 
but our, our place and purpose as the sons of God, as those who are seeking to be conformed to his image by putting off the kinds of things he's spoken of here and putting on the kinds of characteristics now that will enable us to bear the image of Christ because those are the things that he carried. He was meek, lowly of mind, humble, long-suffering, tender-hearted, compassionate towards others. Those are the kinds of things that we need to bear in our life. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now. It's a whole lot easier for me to stand up here and tell you about it than for me to get down here and walk down there and then do it, just like it is for you. But, you know, I also have to be come back and be reminded that God has not left me without the resources of his word and his spirit to actually be able to do that very thing. So I know that I can do it. I know that it is within me because if my faith is resting upon what God has given me in his word, then I'm capable of doing it. And there is no such thing as saying, well, hey, I see others being able to handle that, but I've just never been able to do it. It's not for me. This is really for somebody else. Uh, you know, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I'm saved. You know, I'm da 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 and on and on. But this here, I, I just don't see how this could ever happen to me. And I'll guarantee you, I went for years thinking that. I went for a long time thinking, how in the world am I ever going to get victory in my life? And I'll tell you, I've told you this before, but it wasn't until I grasped the concept of the kingdom that these things began to open up to me and things began to happen. Changes began to take place. And I mean, I was amazed by it. It's like I woke up one day and said, hey, I think I've changed a little bit here. I'm not the same person I was. And it's all because of the power of Christ and his word to change people, to change a person. And he can, it's all about, you know, we've been inherited in politics and economics in our country today, change. But this is the change we need to be focusing on. This is the real thing right here. Bearing the image of God in Jesus Christ, the face of Jesus Christ. And so when, when, when the Lord, well, you know, he, he moves on and, and to, well, I guess I should better not jump over that. You know, in verse uh, <clears throat> 14, we mentioned this last week, and above all these things, he says, put on love or charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And that word perfectness is the word, uh, the root word there is teleos, it's completeness. It's to bring something to the full, to its final end. And that's to tell us that there is a purpose in view. There is a goal to which we are moving as Christians. And that's to full maturity. As full-blown, mature followers of Jesus Christ. But more, even more than that. Because in the, in the New Testament context, and I'm talking about beyond the Gospels and, and really the book of Acts... You know, after, oh, I don't remember what chapter it is now. 
I looked it up just the other day. There's a certain point in the book of Acts where you don't even, and through the rest of the New Testament, you don't ever hear the word disciple mentioned again. And what I'm trying to say, and I think what the scriptures are saying to us, is that in view of this new organism, this new spiritual entity which the Lord created, the church, the body of Christ, in our context, it's those assembled here today, that he's talking about This bringing to completion comes within the context of our relationship with each other. In other words, discipleship has more of a connotation of me. It's my job. It is my duty as a believer in Christ to be wholly devoted to him, to following the Lord Jesus Christ, being obedient in all that he has taught us, regarding what he expects of a disciple. But in the context of the church, which Paul, which we covered a year ago, over several weeks, he talked explicitly about the inner workings of this body and every other local body of believers, that they are connected with tissue and muscle and sinew and ligaments, so that each one cannot function or operate separately or apart from the other. They're all part of the same thing. That's why he said when one member of the body hurts, then all the rest of them ought to feel the same pain. Maybe not equally, but you ought to be more sensitive to it. We ought to know about it and share in that. And, of course, we've had opportunity to do that, haven't we? God gives us opportunity to do those things. But if we, here's the thing. If we turn away because I haven't got time or I'm just too intimidated by such things or I just, you know, I'm just, I'm not a people person. How can you be in the body of Christ and not be a people person? It demands it. And so all these inner workings that he's talking about and putting on all these things and putting off all these other things is all so that the body can function together in proper fashion and so that it can be the witness that we were designed to be to this community and to the world around us. In, 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 in verse 15, in respect to that body, Within the body, notice what he says, the preeminent thing to guide relationships within the body is the peace of God. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And that word rule there means to act like an umpire. In other words... Relationships within the body should be governed by the principle of peace. And that we should seek peace at all costs. 
and in every fashion, every possible way, peace should be the ruling factor. Matter of fact, then he says, To the which you were also called in one body, and be ye thankful. Now, I'm still working on the thankful part. Well, I can read it, and I'm, I'm, I have a heart of gratitude. I'm just trying to figure out how thankfulness fits into this whole context here of letting peace be the ruling factor in the body. Now, I'm not ignorant of the fact that um, you know, gratitude plays a major part in the New Testament. And our heart attitude towards those things are preeminent. I'm just saying I'm still working on a little more of this here. I need it in my, in my heart, in my life. In view of that, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Well, we had a song like that this morning, a spiritual song, focusing on the word of God. And that's what all these are to do. Matter of fact, um, uh, one writer said psalms itself, just the word psalms implies a song that is accompanied by musical instruments. I know there's some churches in our area that teach against that. You, you don't, shouldn't have musical instruments in your worship service. They're just not conducive to uh, Christian living and Christian life. I mean, after all, Paul talks about those sounding brass and tinkling cymbal and all that stuff, and shoot, do away with that. But those saints of the Old Testament, God's people of the Old Testament, you know, used instruments prolifically in their worship in the temple. And I don't think God's eliminated them for us today either. And that which directs our hearts and our minds towards God and His Word is beneficial to us and helpful. Matter of fact, I heard over overheard Janet this morning. She was singing in there. Uh, I think it was ironing maybe or something, and she was singing away, and Tori said, I don't, I don't care for that song. And, and she, I heard her say, but I'm singing this to the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping God right now <clears throat> and trying to teach her that, you know, you gotta be, better be tolerant of me here because this is not just for fun and play that I'm singing this song. And it's good to hum songs or sing to ourselves, uh, Generally, I try to only do that in the car when I'm by myself. <laughs> my, my singing is, like one other fellow said, it's called disturbing public worship. So you don't want to hear much of that. But, but it's profitable to us. And then everything we do, whether it's in word or deed, do all, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Those things describe all of these these things about beginning up there in verse 12, the, the tender mercies, the meekness, the humbleness of mind, all talk of, all these have to do with our relationship to others. But then he moves down here when he starts talking about these songs and hymns and spiritual songs and psalms. These are things that nurture the heart. These are the things that enable us to produce those kinds of qualities he's talking about in verse 12. The kindness and the humbleness of mind and so on, the long, being long-suffering or long-tempered. And so all these changes 
all these things that he's dictating to us that we ought to be proactive about in our lives, bear with us as, number one, a responsibility that you and I each, individually, we carry. But, though we carry that responsibility individually as a believer in Christ, and putting off these things and putting on these other qualities of Christ, he's simply telling us that within the context of the body, that it all works together. And we need one another within that context to achieve those things. If we want to bring or or see brought to um, this completion in verse 14 or this perfectness, this completeness or this maturity, if we want to see ourselves arrive at this full knowledge or this mature knowledge of Jesus Christ, the clear implication that he gives us here is that it cannot happen apart from this, the body of Christ. You cannot walk out the door, go to your home, and spend your life there apart from a body of, of believers and expect these things to happen because it won't. Oh, you might grow to a limited degree. You see, you might grow in knowledge You might grow in understanding. You might understand the teachings of God's word. You might begin to understand his ways. But then, how would you ever put them into practice? How would you ever deliver on those goods if you weren't doing those things within the context of the body of Christ? And that's what Paul's Paul's longing at or getting at, driving for in this passage here. That there, and you know, we could, you could spend so much time on this. It's crazy. I'm trying to avoid just going over all, all the rest of the New Testament. You go back to Ephesians, where Paul, in many of these instances here, gives a fuller explanation, and there he just simply uses the phrase "unity of the spirit." There is to be a unified spirit within the body of Christ. Well, that's not really a whole lot different than then saying, "Let the peace of God rule in your hearts." If we allow God's peace to take preeminence and rule in each one of us, then the outcome is going to be a unity of spirit, the bond of perfectness or completeness. And that's what we ought to be striving for. That is what we ought to be reaching for. It is these who are the opposite of the sons of disobedience. You would be a son of obedience then. You would be a son that is well-pleasing to his heavenly father. You would be a son who is going to receive well done. You will be a son in whom you will be well spoken of because the father is pleased with you. Or because it says back there in Psalm 91, you have set your love upon him. Or you've done what Paul said here in in chapter 3, verse 2. For you set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. That's where we ought to be. And that's where I want to be. I want to be growing on a day-by-day basis and be constantly renewed in him. 